Welcome back to Word and Table, a bi-weekly podcast on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship, and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as always, with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest and the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation and the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, uh, today let's talk again about another um, father of the church who maybe has some writings that ended up outside of the uh, accepted corpus, but who's nonetheless super, super important to establishing Christian orthodoxy. Um, and uh, one might even say that he's maybe the origin of a lot of our, our doctrine. Well, he was certainly an original thinker. An original thinker. <laughs> um, yes, and of course, we're talking about origin with, with an E there, O-R-I-G-E-N. Um, and this, uh, and so we, we had just done, we just done an episode on Tertullian, uh, and origin is, is he around the same time as Tertullian? Yeah, he was born about 30 years after. Okay. So there's a lot of overlap. Okay, got it. And um, he's not a father of the church because... Uh, Later on, he uh, some of his teachings were condemned, so he doesn't have the time. Even though he's extraordinarily important and read widely, is very important, he doesn't actually have the title Father of the Church because of some orthodoxy issues. I see, I see. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, so yeah, maybe we can, we, let's give it an overview and then start talking about his life. Well, one thing that's really important with Origen, he's the first, he invented systematic theology. For the, for the church. Mm. Before that, we had apologists. This means we're basically taking, our enemies are saying things, we're arguing back against our enemies. Yeah, reactive. Reactive. He said, why don't we actually try to, how does this all work together? You know, how do we put this together? And he had an incredible philosophical, professional philosophical background that allowed him, I mean, he was considered a philosopher's philosopher among pagans. Mm. So he was, uh, he was able to take that background and use that to provide an intellectual framework to sort of organize Christian teachings into sort of systematic coherent. Okay. So he's really the father of systematic theology. Got it. So let's start making a positive case for our, our beliefs and put it all together. Right, but it's how everything fits together. Yeah. Because other people, sometimes apologists made positive cases for us, but they didn't put everything together, try to say, how does this all work together? Mm -hmm. You know, try mm -hmm. to synthesize. Yeah. Um, he also was very important as a biblical scholar. He really had a passion for the Bible, mm -hmm. and so he was really devoted to deepening our, our technical understanding of it. Uh, and there's a lasting value to what he's written. I mean, the kind... He, how Christians would interpret the Bible for centuries has its origins in origin. Yeah. Uh, similarly, many of his texts are still used. Uh, you know, many of the things he's written are still used, are still read widely. For example, um, standard readings in the Roman Catholic office. Mm. Origin's a regular writer who appears. Mm. And he's a strong influence of many of the major figures of the early church. For example, Ambrose, who converted Augustine, and Augustine. Right, right, right. They didn't know what to do with the Hebrew scriptures. They found them sort of put, they were sort of put off by them as Romans. Okay. And Origen, thanks to his explanation of how we can interpret them, like open the gates to them. I see. I and they see. You know, said to Ambrose, for example, that was the big deal. Origen really taught me to really appreciate with the treasure we have in the Hebrew scriptures. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Great. Well, tell me about his life. Uh, what, what, what do we know about him? 
We know a lot about him. Uh, first of all, a whole book. Remember Eusebius of Caesarea mm-hmm. wrote a book called the Ecclesiastical History, which is key to understanding early Christian history. Okay. And he devotes a whole, one of his books, book six, is devoted to origin. There are some other people mentioned, but it's basically about origin. He was born in Alexandria in, in 185. So he's, Alec, you know, Alexandria, North, uh, North Africa, there in Egypt. Okay, and he's actually, here's what's really unusual about him. He was raised in a Christian family. Mm, Remember, yeah, okay, that is unusual family. because there hasn't been a lot of Christian families. At no, this point yet. exactly. Okay. This was really, and he's like a native speaker. Uh-huh. Uh huh. No one had had this kind of background. It sort of impulses to Timothy. Look, it was great how you were. You knew the scriptures from you know from your grandmother, your mother. You knew this. So he's getting this from the cradle. You're from the cradle, and he really took it in. So uh, he's the first Christian writer to have this kind of background. Mm. I mean, he is natively Christian, and he also uh, has a passion for the scriptures. Now, his father, even being a Christian, though, was, was, a, was an academic. He was a professional teacher, a secular teacher. And so Urgen got a really first-class classical education. I see. That always helps. <laughs> yeah, it really, really helped him. Now, when he's a young man, what's interesting, his father, and he's only 17, his father died a martyr's death. His father died for the faith. And this is interesting. Origen had wrote a letter telling him, don't, don't try to get out of this because of the family. Wow. wow. He has six younger brothers and a mother that mm. he'd have to take care of, them, by the way. Sure. But he said, no, don't get out of this. You need to be faithful. You know, I want to encourage you, don't worry about us. We will be okay. Don't worry about us. Wow. Wow. Also, he wanted to get martyred himself, but happily his mother had the foresight to hide his clothes, all of them. His and, clothes? What yes. Do you mean? So you'd have to go out naked. Oh, so he was going to like run out. He was going to run out to, you know, to the court. You know, see his dad, hey, you know, I want to join him. And she, oh, he hit all, she hit all the clothes. <laughs> and modesty got the, uh, was life saving in this case. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. Now, what did happen, though, of course, is that his, um, they did lose their property. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes you saw that thing about, um, you know, with Romans about committing suicide. There's a reason they did that. It wasn't to be dramatic like a Japanese thing. Is. Until a person was actually uh, executed, and you know that basically uh, their family still had claim to the property, but an executed criminal, and so the property reverted to the state. And so one of the things that people would do traditionally in Roman things was to kill yourself before you're executed, so your family could keep everything. Oh, I see, I see. So if you wonder some of those shows and things why they do that, is it's not being dramatic. It's because if I want my family to have a place to live, and got it. <laughs> <laughs> but he couldn't. But his dad couldn't do that. No, but yeah. his, not that he was inclined. But his family loses all the property. Wow. Yeah. And so Origen actually says, "I got to take care of a mom and six kids." Yeah. Yeah. Origen is seventeen, but because of his education, he's able to actually go out, uh, you know, and uh, teaches. Mm-hmm. He has enough that he could actually start a teaching career. Sure. Now Origen really, um, you know, I normally like to say the Bible means what it says, and I believe that. But unfortunately, Origen really uh, ran a little too far with this. Our Lord says in Matthew 19, he says, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So he actually castrated himself. Oh, no. So Origen counted himself as one who would receive this. Yes. Wow. He actually castrated himself, which will have an effect on his career. Wow. Okay. Wow. So he just he just read that and thought, yep, I, I better do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh <laughs> Well, he's a very, very conscientious guy. I see. Okay. Well, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That. Now, some scholars try to deny, even though it's constant everywhere, that say maybe people said this about him. I'm with this, the traditional group. I think it did happen or it would have been denied. He really did it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. 
So he begins his career in Alexandria. Uh, he stays in Alexandria through 231. And the bishop there is Demetrius. And Demetrius loves him. So Demetrius actually puts him in charge of the catechumens. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of them in Alexandria. He puts him in charge of the catechumens. Now, while he's doing this, he's you know, sort of like pursuing extra, extra education. He said, I really need to get professional type, like go for my PhD. I need to get professional type training sure. on philosophy. He had a really good classical education, but he got world-class. Ammonia Sacchus is actually one of the best teachers of philosophy in the ancient world. He taught Plotinus, who would be the person who follows yeah. Neoplatonism, which saves Platonism. Right, right, right. Was one of his other students. Wow, okay. So Plotinus is a fellow student, you know, has the same teacher as uh, Origen. That's, wow, that's really cool. And he got first class. Everyone, his enemies, but this guy... Yeah. When they talk about Christians, they say, this guy knows his stuff. Uh -huh. He's uh -huh. a philosopher's philosopher. And what he does, he's so interested in this now. He thinks this can really help explain the faith. So he divides his school. He said he had a friend uh, called Heracles. And he says, look, why don't you take the beginners, you know, with those things? And I'm going to take the more advanced students mm -hmm. and teach them using some of the sort of a Christian philosophy, the idea of how we can put this together, system, we say systematic philosophy, uh, theology. And it was so good that actually pagans and heretics would come. Oh, wow. Okay, so this isn't just, like, Bible study at the church. Like, we're really, uh, this it is some serious work. It yeah. being serious. Wow, you know, This okay. is something you didn't have to be in the movement to, to value. Now, sadly, relations with Demetrius begin to sour. And what it probably is, is origin is so good that people are consulting him on theological issues. Oh, okay, and the bishop is like, Demetrius hey. Demetrius is the bishop. This is sort of, maybe in some me. ways, yeah. uh, you know, Saul slain his thousands. Okay, yeah, I see, I see. A little jealousy here. Well, no, there's actually a deeper issue, too, about where is authority in the church. Authority, okay, yeah. So the real question is, one thing, it's wonderful to have the support, but the idea that how far is it right for someone who's a lay theologian, what role should they be taking at the leading edge of the church? Not as sure, advisors, sure. but actually getting as direct players in this. Okay. So I think there's some real concerns about where this would end up. So the philosophical view Origen had was a classical academic saying, look, I know more. You know, I, he was a humblest guy, but, you know, basically... Why shouldn't I use, where I think Demetrius was, um, uh, and also something to be said about Origen. Origen never contradicts the church. Whenever the church actually had a teaching in place, he always followed it. Mm -hmm. Even when it go against the basic tenets of uh, the Platonists, for example, he was very anti-Gnostic mm -hmm. because the church was anti-Gnostic. Okay. So he wasn't trying to say, I'm the smart guy here, the church is wrong, but he thought there was a lot of sort of academic freedom for things that were not within the clear teaching of, of scripture in the church. Okay, so he really did he, he really did submit himself to the authority of the church. Right, but yeah. still otherwise in new areas though he was a free felt free to be a free agent and I think Demetrius had some problems about that. I see. But Origen tried to solve the problem. He said, okay, because remember as an academic, you know, basically Demetrius had no real control over him. Okay. So he said, well, I'll become a priest. And if I become a priest, then that means that Demetrius, I will be subject to him. He'll be my boss. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In a very direct way. However, the problem here was that um, uh, Demetrius said, I can't. You, you're, you've castrated yourself. You can't be a priest. Huh. So you couldn't be a priest if you castrated No, no. Yourself. The idea, well, they used a lot of Old Testament things saying, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, you should be a priest in the Old Testament should, you know, be physically. Okay, virile. I see. Yeah. yeah, okay, so, no, so, oops, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that's very important here to understand is there was never a question of his orthodoxy. Mm. 
The problems with Demetrius were completely practical matters. I won't ordain you, and uh-huh, so, uh-huh. It, it was never ever a question that gee, you're teaching things that aren't true. So any question about that comes way later. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So he actually goes off to visit Palestine. Uh, I said that because that's how it was described at this time. And he preached in churches in the presence of bishops. He was so well-respected that even pr- bishops in Palestine wanted to sit in the audience and listen to him and learn because yeah. he's a great biblical scholar. And the idea of, of actually a layman preaching to bishops really offended a lot of the bishops. This is where you get the wrong message about where ultimate authority lies. Is it charismatic or is it based on knowledge? You know, mm-hmm. What's ultimately mm-hmm. the authority lie? So Alexander hears, uh, rather Demetrius hears about this. And he says, look, you get back here right now. Hmm. You, you hmm. get back here. So he comes back. And so later on what happens in 231, you know, so we basically go about another, another 15 years. And there's some her- problems with heresies in Greece. So this isn't a matter of preaching to bishops or something. He said, can you help us answer these heretics? Because, you know, with your kind of skills, this is perfect. Sure, sure. And that doesn't seem to be a problem. However, he's on the way there. He stops in Palestine. And they said, wait a second. We don't want to get you in trouble again. Why don't we just ordain you here? And then if you go talking to people, no one's going to criticize you because you are a priest. Yeah. Well, was that the wrong move? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Demetrius is beside himself. He said, first of all, I told you this man, first of all, I'm his bishop. How can you ordain someone against the will of his bishop? Mm, yeah, I could see the complaint for sure. Yes. And also he said, that I mentioned the man's castrated. Yeah. You know, so he said that's, that's still true. And it was so bad that he basically said, look, I won't... Um, allow him to return to Alexandria, and he actually has him condemned by two synods and deposed as a priest. Oh, wow. Man. Yeah. Well, he said he wasn't a priest. But again, this is not over his orthodoxy. No, it this wasn't is a over question the particulars of, of yeah. his ordination, I see. Yeah. Uh, you, and so when Demetrius... Now, what happens, you might think, well, maybe it was, it, it was a, a lucky fork in the road that Demetrius dies that year. Okay. And his old friend Heracles, the one he put assigned to that, that, that right. um, school, now yeah. becomes bishop. Oh. Well, will this solve everything? No. Heracles, the first thing he does is says, Demetrius was right. Oh. Okay. So what he <laughs> has to do. Disappointing. <laughs> so he stays in Palestine. But actually, it turns out helpful for him because he actually founds a school there. Uh, and his strong support from Alexander, who's the bishop of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And actually, the end of the road comes uh, very nobly under the Dacian persecution. Remember right. the, the, the thousandth anniversary one. the big one. Uh, he is actually tortured brutally, and they won't kill him because their their dream is this man is so well known. If we got something like this to deny the faith, imagine what a boon this would be. Yeah. For the rest, you know, for paganism. Yeah. So they don't want him to die. So they torture him and torture him, and they send him off. And his health is so broken that he dies as a result in 254. Oh wow, wow, wow! But they wouldn't kill him. He would have loved to have uh, martyred him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that would have just made things worse for them. It seems like a pretty amazing guy. Like that's that's uh, a pretty incredible. What life. we talk about his work, we really see uh, the contribution he made was enormous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. First of all, the body of his work. Jerome tells us that he wrote two thousand treatises. <laughs> Actually, his name I can't make this up. He was he had a nickname. He was called Bowels of Bronze. <laughs> that was supposed to be in Greek. That was supposed to be meaning a real hard worker. 
I don't yeah, mean how long yeah, you had to take, yeah. how often you had to take bathroom breaks. So I don't you know. Just, you just kept at it. Bowels of bronze, like you know, like like a golden mouth. You know, yeah, when you talk yeah. about with Chris Chrysostom. <laughs> golden bronze bowels. bowels of bronze. <laughs> the br- <laughs> That's pretty. No, I mean, but it's talking about how much he could write, right? It was like, amazing. Oh my goodness, yeah, that this guy could just do it. And his primary focus is he was because he was raised as a Christian with the Bible. He had a passion for the Scripture that would any child of the Reformation would would see a kindred spirit here. Mm-hmm. He just loved the Bible, and so his primary focus is on how do we interpret the Bible. And also, is part of the, how he interprets it's based on the fact he really has almost a Jewish view, a very strict view of, of this is every word is the word of God. Mm-hmm. And so he said, we really need to take this very, very serious. It always means something. These are the words of God. Yeah. So his exegetical message, he said, look, there are three real levels. Later on, they'll become four. But he comes up with the three that we build the four on. He calls them, he compares to body, soul, and spirit Mm. from philosophy. Mm -hmm. The lowest level of the body, the corporal. He said, that's just the the, the story of scripture, just the basic storyline. Okay. What does Abraham do now? Yeah. Where did did Moses go? That kind of the storyline. Uh-huh. And the second one, soul is moral. That often we have moral lessons from this. Mm-hmm. Moses mm-hmm. standing in the breach, you know, what does this tell us? You know, that kind of thing. Sure. But his favorite was what he called spirit, which is, we'd say, a combination of allegory and anagogy. Uh, al- that means basically types of Christ. Sure. Yeah. We've, like the episode we did on Christ in the Old Testament. Exactly. So this is this kind of interpretation. Welcome to origin. Okay. And he became beloved for this. Yeah. Yeah. And here's how he justified it, too. One of the things that really bothered people is, gee, when you come to the Old Testament, there are some things that just don't seem very edifying, like Lot sleeping with his two daughters. Mm, mm. And he said, well, this is a clue to us that there must be a deeper meaning. So his proof, since he had such a high level of, you know, every word of scripture is from God, there's nothing that's just sort of padding or just, you know, getting through, is he would often, it's unbelievable, he'd get through the allegories, um, some more fetched than others, but he would, uh, you know, but some were really, really on the money of, you know, a spiritual meaning that could be assigned. That's why it became extraordinarily popular. Like, you know, a lot of people who originally were, as Romans who didn't come in this background were put off. Yeah. Thanks to Origen, they began to really love, they started seeing Christ in the Old Testament and things. Sure, and sure. And changed how they, how they viewed it. And Paul gives a, gives a justification for this. Remember Paul in Galatians talks about, he said, you know, there's the, the slave woman, talk about Hagar and the free woman, Sarah. Yeah. And there's the son of the slave woman. He said, I'm saying, Paul says, I'm saying this is really talking about the church in Israel. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Paul this says, this a... is really now. And so he, he, that's how he does it. He goes back there and says, I'm telling you that these, like the two daughters a lot, you know, that each one, you know, have, these have meanings, deeper meanings. So he says, all three, first of all, you have to start certainly with the body. What's the story? Mm-hmm. Then you have to, there are morals we can learn from these stories. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, what can it tell us about deeper issues of, of Christ? Mm-hmm. And um, an example, though, like in the New Testament, of how he goes at it, it becomes uh, become beloved of people, is the tale of the Good Samaritan, which obviously we know what the, the story is, and we certainly know what the moral of the tale is. You know, go do likewise. Go do likewise, yeah. But he says, no, there's a deeper meaning. And every single thing in this is an analogy, then. We have the man on the journey is Adam. Hmm. And he's coming from Jerusalem, which is up high, right, because Jerusalem's a mountain. You know, and so he's coming down to Jericho, which is in the deepest valley. So he's going from paradise into the world. Jericho is the world. Jerusalem is paradise. And he's the hostile powers. You know, his man is driven from the garden of oh, paradise. Okay. Not only does he have to go down, but he's actually attacked by you know by the enemy. Okay, so this is so this is really Adam 
yes. leaving the garden, coming down into the valley, but but not all only humanity that, with Adam. Yeah. All the humanity with Adam. Okay. And he's being attacked by hostile powers, and the law and the prophets aren't able to help. Oh, they don't really. Oh, Luther would have loved this. But <laughs> so, the Samaritan is Christ. Uh huh. He's the one. And uh, you know, by the way, the the wounds we have for this uh, uh, for the uh, Adam, those wounds are his sins, his disobedience are his wounds. And the beast that Christ puts him on is his own body. You know, his own body will bear his sins. Yeah, yeah, will bear his sins, and he brings him to the inn, which is the church. Uh And the two denarii are the gift of the Father and the Son. You know, the manager is the head of the church, and the promise of return is the second coming. Wow, wow. Welcome to origin. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he really runs with that, doesn't he? He runs. <laughs> but, this, but he's, I mean, but again, this is, he's a real conservative guy about scripture, right? Oh, yeah, Like, yeah. you know, this is the word of God, and this is, yeah. Very much so. He said there, and that, that was his point, was there could be nothing here that some things would seem shocking. Sure, Sometimes yeah. there, there has to be, as his view, there must be some spiritual meaning in addition to the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of his arguments. So he's not just playing around here. He's really, no. yeah, okay. And many of them are right, are, are traditionally how the church does see actual types of Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some are places we wouldn't go. Uh-huh. But a lot are extremely valuable. That's why they're still used with great, uh, some of the images he has. Like remember that um, Rahab, you know, uh, puts the uh, the red cord, cord yeah, in the window yeah. of the blood of Christ. You uh-huh. know, you know, you know depending on the, those kind of things. Sure. Okay. So there's this very, it seems like a very sophisticated idea of meaning and, and, and what, what can really be said about scripture. Yeah. Yeah. And those levels will, will, will for over a thousand years are going to influence how the church interprets scripture. Right. Right. You know, the except they had a fourth level, they break the spirit into allegorical and anagogical. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. One sort of going backward, forward, and one it's still forward into the future. Okay. I see. So that's yeah. much later. Uh, and then he also was a biblical scholar, and he said, we have to really get... So he wrote a book called The Exapla, which I call like the 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 the, uh, the group of six. Okay, group of six. Like a sextuplet <laughs> is okay. what it really means. That's what, you know, it yeah. means a group of six. And what was it? Six columns. He wanted to get the best text. And so what he did is he, he first of all, takes the Hebrew text with the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew letters. It doesn't have the vowels. It has those, some consonants that are used as vowels in the earliest version. They're called the Matres Lexianas for all of our Hebrew scholars here. Um, but yeah. he doesn't have the, the later vowels, you know, the, the masturbatic markings and things are not there at this time. Right. Course. It's the kind of like abbreviated, the shorthand version, basically. Well, right? it's just based the consonants. In Hebrew, yeah. you write with the consonants, except a few times, three of the consonants are sometimes in unusual situations uses vowels. Got it. Got it. But okay. there aren't the regular vowels. So he's got the Hebrew text here, though. Yeah. But because of that, he then puts that into Greek. Oh, I see. You know, so next he has just the, basically a transliteration into Greek. Here, okay, so just like each word. Here's how you'd say it. Uh-huh. And then what we have from there is we have four columns. And the four columns, have, first of all, we, we, have, we, have the, uh, we have the Septuagint, which is the standard translation. All these are all Jewish translations, Right, the too. Bible of the 70 into, the Bible of the into 70. Greek. Now, later on, something, something I named Theodosian basically did sort of the revised standard version of the Septuagint. Okay, okay. And that's the Theodosian version. All right. So we have that. Then we had another Jew named Aquila, who uh, also did a version, his own independent version of the of the uh, of the Hebrew scriptures. And there was a man named Symmachus who did his revised version of Aquila. Uh, okay. 
So for the scriptures, we have those. So we've got a body of work here. Yeah, so yeah. we have basically, it's what we'd have like the Bibles, we have comparative Bibles. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. This is really neat. So you could actually study and think, here are different translations of these words. You have all the information you need to do some basic, basic work. And when it comes to the book of Psalms, we have nine trans, we have nine columns. Wow. Okay, so this is, okay, so we've just jumped from, <laughs> we've just jumped from super allegorical, typological translation. Uh, and, but now we're in, we're into, you know, I feel like uh, evangelical Protestants can yeah. really get into this <laughs> into Absol- this side of origin right absolutely yeah okay absolutely cool. and then with other works we say like a systematic theology is the periarchon which is de principis is the latin title of it, it means first things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and this is the first system it was in 125 is the first systematic theology yeah so yeah. not just apologetics i mean put all of it how does this fit together okay yeah uh, then we have apologetics. He wrote a book against Celsus. Now, this is interesting. He didn't want to do apologetics. That wasn't his thing. Mm-hmm. However, he does it well because he'd rather do the... But here's what they had. Celsus wrote a remarkably effective assault on Christianity for, for pagans. They thought that he made some good points. Yeah. Actually, it was a very intelligent argument. We have a better argument, but it was a very... It wasn't the abusive type of thing. It was a serious... The, he really... A serious philosophical argument against uh-huh. Christianity. And so what they said, we need somebody like you who can argue these points. These are really technical points from professional philosophers. And they, we need someone like you. Could you, and he said, oh, if the church needs it, okay. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a really great defense called Against Celsus. And what's really funny is that's the, all we have of the Celsus. Christians destroyed all the Celsus. But they okay. kept, <laughs> so we can reconstruct three quarters of that book. I see, I see. From his extensive quotes. Because he didn't have quotes. He doesn't say Celsus said this. He gives the quotes. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he gives them a fair play. Okay. He also wrote tons of exegetical works, uh, like on Genesis, uh, fabulous, uh, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Matthew, Song of Solomon. Yeah. So yeah. we have some really great uh, commentaries. Ascetical uh, Theology wrote a treatise on prayer. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. wrote an exhortation to martyrdom. Oh, wow. So he was into asceticism as well, right? So he's, oh, yeah. he's kind of part of that. Well, no, actually, ascetical theology, in this case, at least, it means prayer. I'm talking about Oh, okay, prayer. just that means, that's, that means yeah. prayer. Okay, yeah. I see, I see. So tell me a little bit about, all right, so this, this all sounds good. I'd, I mean, it sounds like he was a, a good boy as far as, far as uh, yeah. being under the authority of the church is concerned and all that. So why, do, why, do, why is he remembered nowadays as maybe being uh, maybe heterodox on some things or maybe even heretical on on other things where does that come from well again during his lifetime there was not he was considered not just orthodox a pillar of orthodoxy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, what happens frankly is later on a century later what happens is we have for example Evagrius of uh, Pontus Mm -hmm. some called Evagrius Ponticus yeah Um, he goes off the deep end and he said wait some of these things are justified by origin I see okay and so there's some questions, people going back, and Jerome gets involved, and Jerome is a street fighter. Oh, yeah, that's right. We did a thing on Jerome. He's a street fighter, he... <laughs> and, and he takes the anti-origin uh, origin view. And so what happens, he really leads a charge, and so it's, you know, long after origin is dead, he's condemned. Oh, you know, wow. by the Second Council of Constantinople in 553, some of those teachings, okay. you know, his teachings are, are condemned. So, what are the so what are the the points on which we're the orth, unorthodoxy question? I think there are five big ones. Yeah. Okay, uh, the first one is he's accused. I think this is unfair of subordinationism. Subordinationism. That means that the son is inferior to the father, and here's why. Okay, he was explaining that 
traditionally in the in the church, we correctly we pray to the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. And he's sort of describing this and explaining this, but some people were arguing that he was basically saying, well, you know, you don't pray to the Son. He's actually talking about explaining what we do liturgically. But they're saying if you, he's saying not to pray to the Son, to pray to the Father through the Son, is saying the Son somehow is not equal to the Father. I see, I see. I think it was making more of a liturgical statement, but be that as it may, he was accused of, some people have called him the father of Arianism because mm. he said, you pray to the Father, don't pray to the Son. Okay, okay. But uh, a number of scholars now tend to think that it was really just more innocently trying to explain the formula. Okay, I see, I The see. best form to pray, uh-huh. not denying the Son's equality. But uh, be it as it may, some people call him the father of Arianism for that, which mm. I think is mm-hmm. uh, very unfair. Okay. Uh, however... When we talk about uh, pre-existence of souls, huh. he had this big thing, being a philosopher, about free will. If God is just, there must be a reason why things are the way they are. Why are people not spiritually in the same place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so his view is like like in the passage, you know, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Mm-hmm. That must mean before birth they must have done something. Right, right. You know, you know, so that's really how he gets to pre-existent souls. Now, he's not saying he, this is not a belief in um, reincarnation. Reincarnation. Okay, yeah, because I was about to say it sounds a lot like that. No, no, he's not saying that in previous lives. Uh huh. But he is saying that somehow something must have happened in this sort of pro- when we're still a state of a project. You know, we, God saw us in His mind. He coming some something happened that must explain why. So some kind of like like sin or fall before yeah. people are in the body somehow? Pre-nascent, something happens. Uh, Interesting, okay. But so, so why would people end up in bodies? Like, what's the point of that? It, just, it raises a lot of questions, I guess. It raises <laughs> questions, I don't know. But the idea is diversity. He thought this was a, a problem. How could how could God, but he puts great impression, you know, on the ability, on free will, how could God punish, et cetera, someone, you know, who wasn't in the same position type of thing. So he sort of works backwards from that. Yeah. Another thing is damnation is not necessarily forever. Okay, okay. Is his view. He said, well, angels fell, they could rise again. Even Satan, theoretically, could be restored if he repented, because his view is as long as we have free will, which we don't lose, we have the freedom to correct our mistakes. Uh Uh-huh, okay, okay. He said the pains of hell were spiritual rather than physical. His argument was, look, a lot of times the Bible describes describes heaven in a way that seems to be obviously metaphorical. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, so when we talk about the fires of hell, he believed hell was really a place of torment, but he believed it was a matter of spiritual torment. I see, rather than physical. Not, Not physical, you know, physical torment. And the one people talk about a lot now, apocatastasis basically means restoration. That's Greek. Apocatastasis means restoration in Greek, putting things to what they were at the beginning. Yeah. And he's saying, look, everything was great before the sin, and so God basically is going to restore everything to where it, sh- where it was. Yeah, everything. That's, that's become quite popular recently. Yeah, He's inspired by the verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, which says, when all things are subjected to him, speaking of Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This idea of this everything being restored. Okay, so he's like, when Paul says all, he really means all. And, yeah. So that's really universalism. Okay. Now, to be fair to origin, he never claimed that would automatically happen. He left open that that'd be a goal uh-huh. and a possibility, but he never he didn't say it was automatic. I see, I see. So he didn't say this is this is 
he didn't say this is just the logical consequence of uh, this. This is what's going to happen. He just leaves this open. It's open okay. as long as there's free will. That that opening there's always that possibility, and the desire, I, the desideratum, would be that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the practical result of this, this really affects. We said he had two thousand works. Well, yeah. most of them are destroyed. Oh no! Because not again. <laughs> the, the emperor, the emperor Justinian, and that, that happily did not happen to Julian, but, but he's just too popular. Okay. But uh, but Origen was popular. But the emperor Justinian actually ordered his works to be destroyed. Dang it! Uh, Ten years or so before the condemnation, and so the actually we rely for most of him. We rely upon his works from uh, translation by uh, Rufinus. Okay. Okay. So he translates them into Latin. Latin. Okay. So ironically, even though they were oh, written shoot. in Greek, we have to rely on. And what's trouble with the Latin is, Rufinus is the later translator, is that we wonder whether he got it right. Soft pedaled some of the harder. Oh uh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. knowing that these things that now are no longer popular, we just don't know. Oh, and I mean, I'm sure that uh, a, a classical Greek speaker would have been horrified if he to know that he would only be read in Latin one day, right? Yes, it, 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 it wouldn't. It wouldn't uh... Uh, that's a shame. Well, at least we've got what we've got. But he's an amazing man. What strikes you is he one of the great minds uh, you know, in, in, in the early Christian centuries. Mm-hmm. And, a real, and, and died very faithfully. Died well. faithfully. Yeah. He would have been a martyr. I mean, he went through horrific tortures. Sure, sure. The only reason he wasn't martyred was because they didn't want him to have the martyr's crown yeah so to speak that they wanted bad publicity for the church not good publicity i see i see i see wow well it's quite quite an amazing person and of course he's gonna i mean his writings are gonna influence stunningly smart yeah uh, and uh truly it just amazes you how smart the guy is Well, great. Thanks, Father Stephen. Uh, anything else you've got for us on, on Origen? Again, I think that his uh, he, his um, interpretations of the Old Testament have a lot of tremendous value there, and including the New Testament as well. Again, his, his biblical work still has a lot really worth reading. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening. <laughs>